All right, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. The text will be up on the screen for you as well. It's printed in your bulletin, but if you have a physical Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3 this morning. We're looking at uh, verses 21 through 26. Recently, uh, in the Buffalo News, there was an article entitled, The Real Truth About People. People are flawed and they're fabulous. I'm going to read a little bit of what this article said about their take on people. Other people are flawed. They're badly flawed. They're selfish. They're mean. They're cheap. They're sloppy. They're lazy. And in most cases, they are completely unwilling to even acknowledge that they're doing anything wrong. No matter how many times we pointed out to them, people are hopelessly flawed. The only real hope we have for creating peace is for us to start seeing people for who they are, both the good and the bad, and not letting their flaws keep us from enjoying them. I know why we get frustrated. But you don't know my in-laws. They're awful. The guy who cheated me on that business deal, he can never be forgiven. That was my life savings. You have no idea how much my spouse continues to hurt me. People are flawed, and they are also fabulous. If we want to have any relationship in our lives at all, we are going to have to start seeing some of their redeeming qualities or we'll drive ourselves nuts, end quote. Anyone in the world, whether you believe in Jesus or not, can see the truths of what this author is talking about, right? That humanity is flawed. But in all of humanity, there's a bit, there's a little bit left that is not completely bad, right? There are things in other people that we enjoy, that we like. The biblical perspective of what this author is getting at says that humanity was made in the image of God. And when sin enters into the picture, that image is fractured, it's broken, but... It is not completely taken away. Since Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been doing our, we have been doing our best, trying to do something about this problem. We have been looking for something to fix this problem of our flawedness. So today, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, We're looking at a passage that we looked at earlier in the semester, but we're looking at it under the heading of why the God-man. Why did God send his son to come in the form of a human? Today we look at a topic called the profound remedy. Nothing else this morning. I want us to think about this. When we celebrate Christmas, like many of us are throughout this season, What are we celebrating? From our passage today, we see that we celebrate Jesus coming in the manger because he is the only answer to our biggest problem. That only through the righteousness of God being revealed through his very son, Jesus Christ, can we be fully restored. Can the flawedness go away completely one day? So let's go ahead and turn to the text this morning. We're in Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 21 through 26. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you now just reminded uh, that we are all flawed. We have all fallen short, as the text has just said. And it is only through the blood of your Son in which we are redeemed, in which we are bought back, and we are made whole again. Father, as we turn to your scriptures this morning, we do pray that you would be with us here. Allow any distractions to fall away for any objections in our mind that want to us to focus on ourselves and our goodness to fall away that we may see the goodness in your Son, Jesus Christ. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So over the past few years, uh, I've gotten into a hobby of building things with my hands, uh, p- small pieces of furniture, fixing things in my house. And with that, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, with kind of with anything I do, I, I kind of go on a big scale, which drives my nut- wife nuts, but I do this and I really try to do it really well. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, during the day in my off time, I'm trying to uh, figure out what is the best way to build certain things. So I, I find myself watching uh, several videos on how to pick out lumber at a lumber yard. So uh, all these guys have different opinions, mostly pretty much the same. So I would take my girls, after all, I've gotten all this knowledge, and I would take them to the lumber yard to pick out the wood that I'm going to use to build something with. And I would pick it up, and I would, you're supposed to look at it straight down and see if there's a, a curve at all in the wood to see. So if, if there's any curve, you put it down and you go on to the next one. The next thing I do is put it on the ground, and I see if it wobbles at all, to see if it's warped at all. After that, I'll check for uh, knots or splinters or if it was cut wrong, any of these sort of things. And as I spend a couple hours doing this process, right, it takes a long time. Every time I walk away from the lumberyard, I leave with not a single piece of perfect wood, not a single one doesn't matter if it's plywood, if it's two by fours, two by sixes, anything. There's nothing perfect that gets in my car to go make something else, right? And we can think about humanity in the same way. That sin has entered into creation, and now not only is lumber flawed, but all of humanity is flawed. The text this morning told us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us intentionally and unintentionally by what we have done and what we have left undone. Our confession says that over and over again. We have sinned against God and one another. When I'm teaching the children, the children's communicate class, we have a little class before the kids uh, come to communion. 
I talk to them about sin and what it means to sin. And I ask them this question. I say, how, how have you sinned this week? And I like to try to set the stage for them. And I actually think of examples from that week. And if I were to give you an example today, it's like, this week, my kids are in children's worship. So I will say this. My kids, we went to get snow cones after school one day. And they were bouncing off the walls because of sugar after that. And I snapped big time on them. So if I was teaching them this morning, I would say, and I had to go to them, and I had to apologize and say, I'm sorry. Daddy got frustrated. I was overwhelmed by the volume, by the chaos, and I'm sorry about that. So often when I come to these children, they'll say things like, oh, I hit my brother, or I didn't listen to my teacher at school. I was mean to my friend. You know, the adults in the room, we kind of snicker. We think, oh, that's really cute that they're like admitting sin, right? The truth is, The reason we do confession here, a confession of sin every week, is that we all need that, right? From the youngest to the oldest. We need to confess our sins together each week. It's good for us to remember that we are not perfect. Each week we sin. Each day we sin. And realize how sin affects our very life. So in our passage today, uh, this phrase, the righteousness of God, it's, it's mentioned several times, four times dependent upon the translation, but in the translation we have four different times. And many scholars will say that this is the key expression of this text. And one scholar says this, I'm going to quote him. The righteousness of God that is now being revealed is this, his saving righteousness, his saving action in Jesus Christ by which human sin is atoned for. So in this section in Romans, where we are in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, we see that God's righteousness is being revealed by his saving work through his son, Jesus Christ. John Stott is a a very famous uh, commentator, pastor. He was maybe my favorite quote that I read all week. said this, this, that justification or the work of God saving his people is this, God's righteous way of, of righteousing the unrighteous. He righteouses the unrighteous in a righteous way. So at the heart of this text is this very truth. God's justifying work of sinners. And I'm going to come to this text, and I think Chuck has done a good job as we've been walking through Romans to do this as well. But I'm going to come to this text this morning not assuming that you're a Christian, Not assuming that you read your Bible all the time and you've studied every word in the book of Romans, right? Because there's a lot of words in here that need to be defined. And if they're not defined well, then we really don't know what the text is trying to say. So I'm going to do my best to try to define several of the big words that we see uh, throughout uh, this passage. First one, we see God's work in Jesus Christ is the justification of his people. So that word justification is the first word that we need to define before we kind of get into uh, the structure of where we're going okay so justification you could say that to justify is to declare or pronounce righteous to declare or pronounce righteous because this is such at the heart of where we're going today i'm going to give you a little bit more justification is a legal or forensic term belonging belonging to the law courts so it's the opposite of condemnation okay that helps you Both are pronouncements of a judge. So in the Christian context, they are alternative eschatological views. One is going to end up in this way, and one is going to end up in this way. Condemned or justified. 
So this morning and this season, as we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, God's own Son, Jesus Christ, in the manger, we need to remember why he had to come. He had to come not because he made a world that was flawed, as Chuck has told us over and over again, but because we brought sin into the world. Jesus Christ, he's born in the manger, but he came ultimately to die. It's a famous Christmas song I'm going to quote. It's called Born to Die, and I think it's very helpful. I try to listen to it every year because it's reminding me it's not just about this cuddly little baby. He actually came with a purpose, and the, the song says this. We came here today to celebrate his birth, but let us not forget why Jesus came to earth. He came born to die. So today, what we see is a theme we're looking at today is the true gift of Christmas is justification received through God's own Son. The true gift of Christmas is justification received through God's own Son. We'll look at three different things. First, the source of our justification, the ground of our justification, and thirdly, the means of our justification. Okay, let's start with the first one. Uh, The source of our justification And we're going to see that this is by grace alone, by God's grace alone. If you remember that phrase, by grace alone, we're going to kind of touch on three different by alones. They came from the Reformation. In verse 25, uh, Paul says this, Whom God put forward is a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So it's really fundamental to understanding the gospel as a whole to see that the Father, God the Father, is the initiator of Jesus coming to earth. It's not us and it's not Christ. It's actually God himself who initiates salvation. Christ himself did not do something that God was reluctant to do. Often, if you think about the Old Testament, you think about a God This is a bad understanding of who God is in the Old Testament, as I should say, is a God full of judgment and wrath, not one who cares for his people. But we actually see in the New Testament and the Old that it has been God's grace that has been the initiator of salvation. And Jesus says, here I am, God. I have come to do your will. So the first move was by God the Father and his grace. He was the initiator. So we see that our justification was given as a gift by God's grace. To kind of define grace, I've done this in the past few weeks, but grace, if we can understand it, is His absolutely free and undeserving favor. Free and undeserving favor of God. Again, Stott says this, God, I'm sorry, grace is God-loving, God-stooping God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. So we see the source of our justification is by God's grace alone. Okay, secondly, let's look at the ground of our justification. Here, this is going to be a little bit longer. We're going to look at three different things. This is in Christ alone. So it is only through Christ and his cross that we have any ground of standing to be justified. There are three main words that 
Paul uses to define or to describe what Christ does here in this text. First is redemption. We're going to see this in verse 24. Secondly, propitiation, verse 25. Third, demonstration in verse 26. So let's start with redemption. Verse 24. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here we are in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this is redemption is one of these words that you probably don't use on a normal basis unless you're talking about Christianity, right? And if you're not talking about Christianity, you're probably not using this word. So redemption, it means deliverance from some evil by the payment of a price. Deliverance from some evil by the payment of a price. So we see the language of redemption used throughout the scriptures. That God, even in the Old Testament, has always been a redeeming God. We see that the people of Israel were redeemed out of slavery of the Egyptians. Later in the Old Testament, we see God redeems his people out of Babylon, restore them to their land, that he has always been a redeeming God. And this morning in Romans, we see God redeeming his people, not from physical slave owners, but from the slavery of sin and guilt. He redeems his people. He buys them back with a price, something they could never do for themselves. A.J. Gordon, he's a pastor in a church in Boston, and I read a story about him in a daily bread. It's a short devotional we get here at the church. It says this, this man, A.J. Gordon, he met a young boy in front of the sanctuary of his church carrying a rusty cage in which several birds fluttered nervously. Gordon inquired, son, where did you get these birds? The boy replied, I trapped them out in the field. What are you going to do with them? Well, I think I'm going to play with them, and I guess I'll just feed them to the old cat I have at home. When Gordon offered to buy them, The lad exclaimed, Mister, you don't want them. They're just little old wild birds and can't sing very well. Gordon replied, I'll give you $2 for the birds and the cage. And the boy replied, Okay, you have a deal, but you're making a bad bargain. The exchange was made, and the boy went away whistling, happy with his shiny coins. Gordon walked around to the back of the church property, opened the door of the small coop, and let the struggling creatures soar into the blue. The next Sunday, he took the empty cage into the pulpit and used it to illustrate his sermon about Christ coming back to seek and to save the lost, paying for them with his very precious blood. He said this in his sermon. That boy told me the birds were not songsters. But when I released them and they winged their way heavenward, It seemed to me they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. When you and I, in our lives, we have all been held captive to sin. But Christ, he has purchased our pardon and set us free. When a person has a life-changing experience like this, he will, she will sing the same song that these birds sung, redeemed, redeemed, 
redeemed. I have been bought with a price. Secondly, let's look at verse 25. This is propitiation. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. So in these verses, we see that Paul is describing God's solution to the human predicament. Not only sin, but God's wrath upon sin. And where there is divine wrath towards the sinner, there needs to be something to avert it. So the New Bible Dictionary, this is what I'm using for a lot of these terms. If, if you don't have this, it's the New Bible Dictionary. It's really, really helpful. usually gives you concise uh, definitions of any biblical language plus a long explanation of words used in the Scripture. So I'm using uh, this for most of these definitions, if not all. Okay, so the New Bible Dictionary explains propitiation like this. It says, Propitiation properly signifies the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. The removal of God's wrath by the offering of a gift. So in our text today, taking that definition, we see that the gift of Jesus' very blood averts the wrath that we are due. And some will say, and I'm sure if not, I'm sure most of us in the room, if not all of us in the room have heard this, how can you follow a God who wants to pour out wrath on his own creation. And I think this is answered by looking at the very character of who God is. He is full of wisdom, of power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That God's wrath, his anger, is kindled against anything that goes against his holy character. That God's holy wrath rests on evil, the things that undo his perfect creation. The thing about God's wrath is that that there is nothing unpredictable about it. It rests on evil alone. The evil that tears down the very creation he formed, the one that defaces God himself through their words. He is angry at this injustice, the tearing down of his creation. His wrath, it rests on evil. But that is not the end of the story as we have seen in Romans chapter 3. That God creates a way to spare humanity the wrath they were due and at the same time remained just and holy. One theologian says this, God's own great love propitiated his holy wrath through the gift of his own dear Son, who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. God satisfied the wrath that was due to us by placing it on his very Son. Thirdly, let's look at demonstration, verse 26. I'm going to read 25 as well for context. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we see here that God demonstrates his justice at the cross. That the cross of Christ was not only uh, an achievement, it was also a demonstration. 
One theologian says it, it not only accomplished the propitiation of God, the removal of wrath for a price, and the redemption, the buying back of sinners, but it also vindicated the justice of God. It put on full display his righteousness and his justice because his, sin, his son took the penalty we deserved. At the same time, he demonstrated his justice by punishing the sin. The punishment did not go to the guilty party, to you and to me, but it went to his very son, Jesus Christ. The text tells us that for many generations, people went on sinning. God withheld the wrath that was due. This was so that at the right time, God could be just punishing sin and also the justifier, the one who saves his people at the same time. Both justice and justification would have been impossible without the cross of Christ. So we see these three things, what he has done, these three terms, what he has done through Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed his people. He has propitiated his wrath. He has demonstrated his justice. Let's look thirdly at the means of our justification. This is through faith alone. We're looking at verses 22, 25, 26. All talk about faith. I'm just going to walk... I'm going to read each one of these and we'll just go through the whole thing all together. 22 says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this passage, it shows us clearly that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ that one is saved. And this is why the Reformers coined this phrase, by faith alone, right? We must start by explaining faith, right? Often we speak about being saved by faith and not by works, now, I think we need to kind of start with the idea that this is not to say that we're substituting, substituting one type of merit, works, something we do for God, for another type of merit, faith, which we have in Christ. No, it is simply receiving what God has done for us. Stott says this about faith. The value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To say justification by faith alone is another way of saying justification by Christ alone. At the heart of Christianity is this very truth. It's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that God's grace has turned His wrath away. That God's Son has died our death and borne our judgment. And that God has mercy on the undeserving. And that there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. To receive. 
If you're anything like me, when we come to the Christmas season, we're a Christmas family. November 1 is my deadline for Christmas music in my car. So don't judge me at nothing like that. I love Christmas music, and there's too much for it only to be 30 days. Okay, so November 1st, we start the whole deal. Our Christmas tree went up the day after Emma's birthday, November 9th, right around that area, right? So we've been doing stuff for a long time. We've, we've shopped for our friends. We've been celebrating I mean, we went to ice skate last night downtown. We're going to see the lights. We do lots of things, right? All of us probably go to parties, and our, maybe our employers are throwing parties, all these sorts of things. There's lots going on this season to celebrate, and most, if not all, I would say these things are good in themselves, all, right? But at the same time, these things can distract us. They distract me often, and I'm sure they do you, from what Jesus came to do right? Why we are really celebrating in the first place. It is good to be together with friends. It's good to be together with family. It's good to see beautiful things hanging from houses, right? But at the same time, we don't want it to distract us from what Jesus, the baby in the manger, came to do. Later in the song, Born to Die, it says this, when the babe was born in a manger on the hay, God saw a veil torn. He saw Good Friday. He was born to die. Gold laid before the Christ. Incense, his precious is sweet. Myrrh to signify victory over death's sting. He was born to die. That Jesus, God's very son, came in the manger to ultimately die for you and for me. The response he calls us to is faith. And what do we say? It's just receiving what he has done for us. That he has lived a perfect life. He died, taking upon our wrath that we were deserved. And he rose from the dead, beating sin and death once and for all. So let us this season remember why we are celebrating and rest on and receive Jesus Christ as our only way to salvation. Let us pray together. Father, we are humbled that you continue to pursue us even as we often will turn away from you. We get distracted easily in our lives by the things that go on. And Father, we do pray in this coming season that we would not be distracted even in the days ahead of us now. But we would be reminded that we celebrate Christmas because we ultimately needed a Savior. We needed to come when someone to come to be a remedy for our greatest problem in our life. Father, as we come to your table this morning, we pray that you would nourish us in this time. We thank you for giving us these physical elements which not only represent your your son's body and blood but they also refresh us they encourage us they nourish your own people father be with us in this time in the precious name of jesus we pray amen